0: Good morning. It's a joy to be here. What an honor, what a privilege uh, to come and speak uh, God's word to you. Uh, Pastor Joel has been a longtime friend and partner in ministry. And a couple months ago, he came and preached for us. And uh, even before that, even in the pr- planting process, our church has been around two and a half years. And even through the whole planting process, Joel has just been there encouraging us, praying for us. And I'll tell you, uh, in the two and a half years, we ha- we've had a number of Uh, speakers and preachers come through, but Joel, man, he preached fire when he came, every time he comes. So you guys are blessed to have him. Uh, Thank you for partnering us uh, in ministry for the gospel. Thank you for your faithfulness. It's a joy to be here this morning. Uh, Let me pray for us one more time, and then I'll start. Father, we come before you this morning, and we ask you to fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit, Father, we need Your Word. Speak a necessary word. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see that You may be glorified and Your church edified. Father, use these words to draw our hearts to You, to Your Son. Draw lost people who do not know You here to know You as Savior and Lord. Be glorified, we pray, through our time. In Jesus' name, amen. What can miserable Christians sing? What can miserable Christians sing? Asks Carl Truman in his well-known essay. In it, Truman recognizes that life has a sad, melancholy, and painful dimension which is too often undermined and even sometimes ignored in many of our churches. Nevertheless, God has given the church a language which allows it to express even the deepest agonies of the human souls in the context of worship. I think Dr. Truman has a point. No matter what season of life, the ups and downs, the joys and sorrows in triumphant symphonies or melancholic laments, Christianity, our faith, is a faith that sings, amen? But if I'm honest, there are many weeks when singing is hard, when I walk into church with a heavy heart, stressed, tired, overwhelmed, feeling underappreciated, worried, and anxious. How about you? Maybe you can relate. How do you sing when you're burdened with life, when you're weighed down by sin? Or bothered by broken relationships, saddened by disappointments, frustrated with unmet desires, or sometimes even unanswered prayers, closed doors, when it seems like you're in a perpetual holding pattern waiting for something to change. Do you look around like I do sometimes, wonder how others have it all together? Do you pretend to put your best foot forward and smile, your way through your season of discontentment? How about in these past few years of the pandemic with all the political and racial and economic and social and cultural tensions and divisions, how do you find joy in such seasons like these? Well, brothers and sisters, take courage. I want to remind you that this is a congregation of broken and needy sinners just like you, just like me. And I have good news for you, our passage this morning speaks to us and reminds us of the reasons why we as believers sing, the reason why we can rejoice even in the midst of great despair. In our text this morning, we see a group of people, although in dire despondency, singing a hopeful song, singing a joyful song. But how? That's the question, isn't it? How can miserable Christians sing such songs of thanksgiving and joy and praise throughout the centuries, through sufferings, through hardships, even through judgment? Our passage tells us how. So brother or sister, friend or visitor, wherever you are, however you came, be reminded this morning from Isaiah 12 of the joys we have in God in the midst of our troubles. Here's the outline so you can follow, three points, joy of salvation from verses 1 and 2, the joy of worship from verses 3 and 4, the joy of evangelism from verses 5 and 6. I pray that these reminders of God's grace and provision will encourage you to be strengthened in hope and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray that you will find refreshment in the joys presented in our passage today. If you are here and you are not a Christian, welcome. So glad that you are here. I know Garden Church and Pastor Joel to be one of the uh, most faithful gospel preaching churches in Baltimore, so I hope that you would come back next Sunday and keep coming back. Amen? But most importantly, if you find yourself here this morning and you are not a Christian, perhaps you come here tired and weary. Well, Jesus invites you this morning. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest." I pray that this message will point you to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for you. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 12, and as you turn there, let me give you some context. The book of Isaiah is one of the most important books of the Bible. It's quoted or referred to in the New Testament over 200 times. It was written around 740, 680 BC. It's a book of prophecy in which God speaks through a chosen servant named Isaiah, which ironically means God saves to bring a message of judgment. You see, in Isaiah's day, the people of God had turned a deaf ear to God's words. Instead of serving and trusting the one true God, they offered up meaningless sacrifices and committed injustices to their neighbors. They turned to trust other kings and other gods and in themselves, which was the reason why Isaiah pronounced God's great judgment and their coming ruin. But as Isaiah declares God's harsh punishments against Israel's sins and against the neighboring empires, we get a sense throughout the pages of Isaiah that God's warnings and judgments have a greater purpose, a promise of salvation. Although the situation in Israel seemed dark and hopeless, Isaiah's prophecies contain a clear message of hope in a coming Messiah. It was God's way of calling His people back to Himself to display His power and glory to Israel and to all the world, that there is no other God besides Yahweh by their destruction and redemption. It was God's way to prove His loving kindness and faithfulness to a remnant, to a chosen few through the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would usher in a new exodus. And this promised salvation is made most prominent in Isaiah chapter 12. Here in Isaiah chapter 12, in the shortest chapter of the entire book of Isaiah, is the climax of the first major part of the book and the high point. Uh, And this high point is the right occasion and celebration, a song of praise to God. It's It's a very concise yet powerful promise of God's clearest intention to save His people through and from judgment by His Messiah. So, let's go ahead and read it now. Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 6 says this, "'You will say in that day,' I will give thanks to You, O Lord, for though You are angry with me, Your anger turned away that You might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. With joy You will draw water from the wells of salvation. So what can miserable Christians sing? Point number one, we can sing of the joy of salvation from verses one through two. Look with me to verse one again. It says this, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you are angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. The first observation we can make from verse one is the fact that Isaiah is predicting what God's rebellious people will say in the future. You will say. They're singing a th- song of thanksgiving, but they haven't sung it yet. They were far from grateful, but they, will, uh, but they uh, were not praising the true God. They were worshiping false gods. You see, God's people, Israel, had become those who did not understand who did not perceive, they were wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. But God knew their true condition. He says of them in Isaiah 1.8, their whole head is sick, their whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. They were utterly and thoroughly and miserably depraved. Well, brothers and sisters, what happens? that in their haughtiness and lofty pride and their wicked hearts, that these people become humbled and changed, what happens? The phrase, in that day, makes all the difference. It's a phrase that Isaiah repeated throughout his prophecies, referring to the day when all that God declares will come to light and fruition. Now, although some regard this day to a particular day in history when God would deliver Israel from the Assyrian invasion, it's impossible to read Isaiah 12 without seeing that in this day refers to a later day, a future day of the Messiah, the anointed promised king that God Himself would send. Verses like chapter 7, verse 14 gives us a clue who this promised king would be, which says this, "'Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign.'" Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. Passages like chapter 9, verse 6 through 7, which says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. You see, this anointed King, this highly exalted King would be the reason why the cursed lips of wicked men will turn to thanksgiving and praise. But there's more amazingness in this verse and we're still on just verse 1. Isaiah foreshadows something unimaginable to happen. And the previous chapters shows us why. So, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 25, it says this, the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people, and He stretched out His hand against them and struck them, but it says, for all this, God's anger has not turned away. In chapter 9, verse 11 and 12, it says this, the Lord raised adversaries and stirs up His enemies and devour Israel with mouth open, but it says, for all this, His anger has not turned away. In chapter 9, 17, when the people still do not turn to Him, the Lord, it says, cut off from Israel head and tail, for everyone is godless and an evildoer. But it says, for all this, His anger has not turned away. In Isaiah nine twenty-one, through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire, no one spares another, yet for all this his anger has not turned away. In ten Isaiah 10, chapter 10, verse 4, God asks, "'What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or to fall among the slain. But even then, when nothing is left but destruction and ruin,' It says, for all this His anger, God's anger, had not turned away. God's anger, brothers and sisters, against Israel and against the wicked humanity is not pacified through destruction, not through judgment. But don't misunderstand. In Ezekiel 33, 1, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from His way and live. And God pleads, turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So then we're left to wonder, don't we? What happens that is so incredibly fate-altering that makes even the most depraved and wicked people, those who rejected their own God after such great deliverances and provisions, Out of the bondage of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the desert, through the promised land, to King King David's reign, to Solomon's glorious temple being built, yet still rejecting, still rebelling, disobeying, how were their hearts turned from looking to the earth to looking up to God in praise? What happens? The following words of this passage are probably the most glorious. Extraordinary comforting words in all of the Old Testament, brothers and sisters, for though you are angry with Me, your anger turned away. Brothers and sisters, because God is holy and righteous, He cannot tolerate sin. He must punish sin or else He would not be a good God, you see. You see, if a criminal who commits an egregious crime comes before a judge in a court, and the judge lets the criminal go for free without a fair and just sentence, that judge would not be a good judge, would he? He would be a bad judge. God is just, right, and a good judge, so He punishes sin rightly and justly. Well, you may ask what crime was committed that was so bad that makes God so angry that He would destroy the world and send people to eternal hell? Seems a little bit unfair, perhaps. Seems a bit crazy. Well, let me illustrate it this way. If a man had a bad day and decide to take his frustrations out on a random man walking by and pushes him, what would you call him? A jerk. Okay? If a man has a bad day and decides to take his frustration out on a little child and hits the child inappropriately, the man needs to be taken to the police. If a man has a bad day and decides to punch a president in the face, he'd be taken to federal prison as a terrorist. If a man sins against a perfectly righteous God who is perfectly loving and good over and over and over again, deliberately disobeying His Word, mocking Him with His pride and self-centeredness, that's a punishment deserving of eternal judgment, is it not? The punishment of our crime escalates by whom the crime is committed against. It's only fair that our right sentence is eternal hell against an eternal God. Brothers and sisters, that is why the phrase, though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, are the most beautiful, incredible, merciful words for you and I this morning. You see, the fundamental problem of the sinner is the wrath of a righteous God against sin. As Romans 1.18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. His just punishment cannot be satisfied, but only by the death of God's own Son, the promised Messiah, to be our substitute sacrifice. Hallelujah. John three sixteen says this, you know it well, for God so loved the world this way. He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Isaiah 53 gives us a fuller and clearer picture of how God Himself would send the Messiah. It says this, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by His wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone, every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the best news you will ever hear that God who is holy and just created you and I in love for His own glory and for our pleasure. But man, having been tempted by Satan, chose to trust in himself, wanting to be a god for himself, deliberately disobeying God's Word. And as a result, man was separated from God, completely helpless and incapable of saving ourselves from the vain and dissatisfying power and curse of sin. So men turned to other gods, but there's no help there, no escape, no cure, no satisfaction from the curse whatsoever was there. But God in His mercy, had a plan from the very beginning to redeem man from our miserable and meaningless rebellion and forgive us of our sins. How? By sending His own Son, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died. He took our place as a substitute on the cross. He paid the debt that we would have paid in eternal hell. And in that day, The anger of the Lord has turned from us to His Son. Jesus took the full wrath of God upon Himself and turned to the Father and pled on our behalf, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And He willingly gave up His spirit declaring, It is finished. Game over. Then on the third day, you guys know, Jesus rose up from death, which meant that God accepted His sacrifice once and for all which meant that Jesus conquered sin, Satan, and death forever. So now whosoever would repent and believe in Him will not die and go to hell, but participate in His his resurrection and live the abundant life here on earth and forevermore in eternity with Him and all who love and fear His name. Amen? Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the comfort of God. This is the comfort of God. For though you are angry with me, Your anger turned away that you might comfort me. This is blessed assurance. This is everlasting hope and peace with God. My salvation is not dependent on me, but on Him alone. As one pastor says, we have hope not in our merit, but only in His mercy. That's why Isaiah testifies on behalf of us all who trust in God in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and He has become my salvation. I had no strength to call my own, no willpower, no fitness, no intellect to grasp the mystery of salvation, no way to save myself. I had no joy to sing, no life, no peace, no hope. I had nothing but until He has become my salvation. I had no testimony. I had no salvation, but now God is my salvation because he has become my salvation. Hallelujah. I will trust and I will not be afraid. I will trust and I will not be afraid. Remember these words were prophecy. It hadn't occurred yet. This was at least 700 years before Jesus was even born. That's why God, through Isaiah, declared words like this from Isaiah 43.10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Brothers and sisters, as God's people look forward to the Messiah's coming in His Word, we can look back at Christ's first coming in God's Word, and we can trust in God's Word because every word that God has promised has been kept in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, our Savior and Lord. In the Hebrew original language that Isaiah was written, the word you in verse 1 is singular, grammatically. You will say in that day, dear beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm asking you this morning, is this your personal testimony yes. that God is my salvation? I will trust and will not be afraid. The Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. If that is true of you, if that is your tr- testimony, then you have a reason to rejoice this morning. Amen? No matter what season of life, no matter what trial or circumstance may come your way, the Lord is my salvation. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian or are not sure that you are, there's no better place for you to be on a Sunday morning than with God's people under God's Word. And I believe and we all believe that God has led you here for a purpose. So let me ask you a question if you are not a Christian or are not sure that you are. Do you have peace with God? Perhaps you have felt the weight of His anger in the way you lack joy in the way you feel empty, in the way you have no ultimate hope. People have disappointed you. You have disappointed yourself. You have no security. You're always looking out for your best interests because you can't trust anybody. You have no firm ground to stand on, no firm foundation. Well, let me tell you this morning that if Jesus isn't your substitute, your advocate, your Savior and Lord, the Bible says simply and clearly, you will not stand in the judgment. The guilty will be punished. You will incur the full wrath of judgment you have reaped upon yourself against God because you have rejected His mercy by rejecting His Son. So I plead with you this morning if you are not a Christian, if you're not a believer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who have made an end to all your sin. This morning, either you are forgiven or not. You are either clear in God's sight or else the wrath of God abides on you. And I beg of you, do not rest. Do not rest. Do not leave this place until you know which it is. So, friend, repent of your sins today. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you. Trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning, this moment, right now. If you want to know more about Jesus, please feel free to talk to me after service or Pastor Joel or any of the other pastors or anyone smiling next to you. We are eager to speak with you more about how you can follow Jesus. Amen? Christians in your trials, in your waiting. Perhaps there are some of you who have forgotten the joy of your salvation. The psalmist prayed, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Psalm 42, 11 says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise in my salvation and my God. Dear brothers and sisters, be reminded of the joy your salvation this morning. His anger has turned away from you, from us." That's a reason to sing. What can weary Christians sing? Point number two, we can sing of the joy of worship. Look at verse 3. It says this, "'With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation.'" This verse is a beautiful picture of how God, uh, through God's merciful salvation, we who are dirty and parched are cleansed by God from our sin, and how who we, we who are so empty and calloused are now satisfied by His thirst-quenching drink from His wells of salvation. To describe you a more vivid picture of this verse, a commentator describes it this way. A person who casually turns on the faucet in an air-conditioned kitchen has very little sense of the impact of these words of Isaiah on the Jews of his day. But remember, Isaiah was writing directly to men and women who walked long under the mid-eastern sun, reflected from the hot sands, and then reveled at the cool water drawn immediately from a well. As they read Isaiah's words, they could feel the cool refreshment of water moistening their lips and dry throats and splashing on their dusty feet. Another commentator illustrates it this way, the prospect of thirsty Weary, dirty people pulling up bucket after bucket of fresh, cool water in endless supply, drinking deeply, pouring it over their heads, dunking their faces into it, splashing it with one another. That is a vision of God's gift of salvation widely shared. Joyfully drawing water from the wells of salvation is the very life of God openly available and accessible to us all, entering into our actual, actual experience. And the deeper we drink of it, the greater our praise. Isn't that good? The illustration of the phrase, wells of salvation, just meditate on that this morning, shows us two ways in which God continues to sufficiently supply us even after salvation. First, think about this. God is the source of life. There are several examples in Scripture where water is God's provision, As source of life. For example, Isaiah 41, 17, it says this, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of their valleys. Also, Isaiah 55, 1, come, Jesus invites, God invites us, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. And so, brothers and sisters, as men come to God with their thirst, God will make water flow on barren mountains. He will cause springs to burst forth from parched grounds. God will urge men and women to drink this water. And remember what Jesus says in John seven thirty-seven. Jesus, quoting Isaiah 55 and Isaiah 12, says this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus invites you this morning. For anyone who is thirsty, anyone who is weary, come and drink of Me. Secondly, God is the source of growth and refreshment, brothers and sisters. I love the relational aspect of uh, that verse 3 uh, that, that, that is drawn out for us. We continually draw from God and He constantly provides. How many of you have witnessed that and experienced that in God? We continually draw, He constantly provides. But think about this, this relational aspect of drawing from the wells of salvation is not only in the sense of vertical relationship, it is also horizontal. Think about it. Whereas in verse one, the original Hebrew word you will say grammatically is singular, Showing us that to enter salvation is an individual experience between me and God, but we get to enjoy the benefits of salvation as a community. The Hebrew word for you in verse three, okay, going, Isaiah is going southern here. With joy, you will draw, is now in plural form. With you, all, you all, y'all, will draw water from the wells of salvation. That's what is changed to in verse three. Isn't that amazing? One commentator notes it this way, the tiny beginnings of one man's salvation has grown into a company of the redeemed. One man's song modulates into a singing community. And the Holy One, who was the sinner's greatest threat, now dwells in the midst of an exultant city as the life-giving, lifetime supply of well-being. Like so, brothers and sisters, this local church, Garden Church, is a community of individuals that God has knit together by individuals covenanting together to reap the blessings of God's salvation together. How amazing is that? I love this church. Do you love this church? What a blessing it is to experience the benefits of God's well of salvation together, to bless, benefit, and build up one another an amazing thing if you think about it. The summer of 2015 was a particularly difficult season for my family. Various hard things happened that summer to make the situation very difficult. Uh, namely, I was uh, for a temporary season jobless and homeless as we were in the midst of a ministry transition. But another thing that happened that piled on even on top of that was that uh, my wife found out that she was uh, miscarried, uh, had miscarried. And because we had no insurance, we couldn't even go to the hospital, and it was one of the hardest seasons that our family faced. So amidst missed financial burdens, uncertainty about the future. Let me just tell you that I did not even have the words to say, much less words to sing on those Sundays. There wasn't much sleeping going on. All I did was get on my face with my Bible open, crying out to the Lord, Lord, help me. Have mercy on me. Have I done something wrong? Have I sinned against you? Show me my sins, show me my ways, the errors of my ways. Have I disobeyed? And let me tell you that all sorts of depressing thoughts and anxiety was a constant battle. I mean, I would literally sit there shaking because of panic attacks. But on one of those Sundays we were at church, happened to be sitting up close to singing a song called, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. I noticed my wife crying next to me while singing. And it stirred my heart to sing the words of the hymn to her. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of Thy great love, leading onward, leading homeward to Thy glorious rest above. Being encouraged by the singing, we happened to catch a glimpse of our pastor, Mark Dever, looking at Jerry, and he was also crying too. We were singing, we were praising and praying and encouraging one another, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, one miserable wretched soul to another miserable soul, one weary heart to another weary heart, hoping, trusting ever, and pointing one another to Our source and supply of life, our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, the local church is a well of salvation for our dry and parched souls. Amen. A dear refuge for our weary souls. Hallelujah. Well, nearly eight years later, the Lord has gifted us with two more children. They're very rowdy. (laughs) All by God's grace. And listen, brothers, that's not even the end of it. I could tell you stories upon stories of how God has provided over and over and over. Most of all, God has given me the privilege to pastor a healthy, growing church in Rockville, Maryland. It took five and a half long years of waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, getting humbled, growing. And so let me tell you that we sing these songs of joy with greater faith. We know better now, more deeply, more truly, the joy of singing these songs to one another together hallelujah with joy you all together will draw water from the wells of salvation the psalmist testifies in Psalm 30 11 through 12 you have turned for me my mourning into dancing you have loosened my sackcloth and clothe me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, isn't it such a joy to be a member of this local church body? To lean on each other through our hardships and sorrows and good times and bad? Are you thankful for the well that is the garden church? And how in His faithfulness and grace, the Lord has established and sustained this church in the heart of Baltimore to satiate thirsty and weary souls. Look at the way that He has provided for you. It's incredible. I heard about your building campaign and the way that the Lord has provided for you. This is a well of salvation. You should sing with more gusto, even more. Hallelujah. So encouraging this morning to be here. Christians, How often do you joyfully draw from the wells of salvation? You notice it says wells of salvation, doesn't it? It doesn't mean that there are many paths or ways to salvation. No, there's only one that's clear in Scripture, but many wells of salvation to encourage us and refresh us along the way. This is in line with Philippians 2.12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. One of the best ways to draw from a well of salvation is to regularly study the Word. So let me ask you this morning, do you read the Word, the Bible, regularly? Do you spend time meditating on what you read? Do you memorize the Word? When's the last time you spent time drinking deep from the well of the book of Isaiah? And it is a glorious book. In addition, do you drink deep from the wells of salvation by regularly preaching and teaching God's word to one another? Are you involved regularly in discipling relationships, drawing from scripture? Discipleship is God's provision for God's people to drink deep regularly. So get with somebody, a brother or sister, and study the word of God together, help them drink deep from this well of salvation. Amen? If you're not a Christian here, what do you do when the wells of this life runs dry, when you exhaust all your resources and all your emotional capital? Does any earthly thing, think about it, ask yourself this morning, does any earthly thing truly give you deep satisfaction, money, sex, pornography, alcohol, drugs, power, none of that is meant to satisfy you truly, deeply. Those things are not meant to fill you up or to satisfy. It cannot. That's why the more you have it, the more you want it. It never satisfies. Jesus says in John 4.13, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Hallelujah. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, have you lost the joy to sing, or are you in a place where joy seems distant? We often forget, don't we, that the joy of corporate worship was designed to guard us against apathy and complacency, don't we? It's because we, in our sinful state, seek to be self-centered and self-focused. God instead, however, calls us into community to unity, to build one another up. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to drink from the source and the supply of life, amen? Amen. Point number three, what can miserable Christians sing? We can sing of the joy of evangelism, joy of evangelism uh, from verses four through six, which says this, and you all will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. What I mean by the joy of evangelism is the joy of our witness, okay? When we remember the word of our salvation respond to god in worship we reflect god's glory in our witness through our proclamation through evangelism through our overflow of worship evangelism again is the natural overflow of our salvation and our worship when we love god and we're loved by god and love by one another and love each other the natural outflow brothers and sisters is evangelism to share the benefits the blessings of god and the church community Church history has shown great movements of God. The works of God always results in missions. After all, the two are directly related as the famous John Piper says, missions exists because worship doesn't, again, the end goal is the worship of God. Every single one of us, brothers and sisters, became a Christian as a result of someone bringing us the evangel, the good news. So I want to ask you this morning, who will you share? this great glorious news with others. It won't happen if you don't share, if you don't speak, if you don't proclaim the joy of your salvation, the joy of worship to others. Well, what should we be proclaiming? What should we be proclaiming? Three quick things. We should proclaim His works among the peoples. If you look at verse 4 and 5, it says this, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. So again, our task is to make known and proclaim Jesus' finished work on the cross, His death and resurrection and redemption of all peoples from every nation, tribe, people, and language, so that praises to the Lord can be lifted up among all peoples. Amen? Amen. We should make known that this has been God's eternal plan From the very beginning, God has not changed His mind at all. This has been His plan from the very beginning. Second thing, we should proclaim the greatness of Christ in our midst. Verse 6 says this, Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Remember, Isaiah 12 is a prophecy. It hasn't happened yet. But for us living in post-Christ first coming... We have a full perspective and insight into His salvific work. Our lives are completely transformed in the revelation that God is with us now by the Holy Spirit. The old things have passed away, the new things have come. So this is our witness of Him as we gather together, lives that look like Him, words that proclaim Him, works that glorify Him and builds up His church. So again, brother or sister in Christ, have you lost or forgotten the joy of evangelism? This may, of course, be one of the most frequent Christian struggles. So let me ask you, examine yourself. When's the last time you share the gospel? Has it been a week? Has it been a month? Has it been a year? Do you pray for someone's salvation regularly? Do you pray that God will give you an opportunity to share the good news with someone this week? 2 Corinthians 6 2 says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Good. So you pray, and God will give you opportunities. I guarantee it. The Word guarantees it. In fact, the reason why we exist today as Christians is to share the good news with someone for the worship of God. So, fathers, continue to faithfully teach your family. Mothers, continue to faithfully disciple your children. Single people, continue to bless one another through faithful ministry of the Word. But pray, 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 all of us, that souls will be saved. Amen? Amen. Third, final thing, and I'm, I'm wrapping up here. What should we proclaim? We proclaim His return. Did you notice how our pro- proclamation intensifies in verse 6? Shout! and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The reason is because our great Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in our midst is coming back again to sovereignly rule and reign over the new heavens and the new earth. I love that word, that that the word inhabitant of Zion in the original Hebrew is once again referred in the singular This time in the feminine form. What that means is, as the church, the bride of Christ, looks forward to Christ, the bridegroom, we have hope, we have great joy because Jesus is coming back again. Brothers and sisters, this is the joy of our proclamation and witness. Jesus is coming back again. He will not leave us abandoned to ourselves. He is coming again. This is the reason why the church can always look above. And forward. You know that famous saying, I'm going to butcher it look down, be depressed, look around, be oppressed, look up, be blessed. Amen? In that day, brothers and sisters, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. In that day, faith will turn to sight. In that day, when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. In that day, all of our suffering, all of our enduring, all of our waiting, all of our persecution will be justified and fully satisfied when He returns. Brothers and sisters, Isaiah 12 is a song we will sing in future glory, but it is a song we can sing of today. What a day it will be. What a joy we have to sing when all of our sorrows will be turned to laughter and joy and shouting His praises. Isaiah 25.8 says of that day again, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. It will be a day of great rejoicing, because the Holy One of Israel will be in our midst. We should conclude. What can miserable, weary, restless Christians sing? We can sing of the joy of salvation. We can sing of the joy of corporate worship. We can sing of the joy of evangelism. It's so easy for us to forget these basic gifts from God. But I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, God knows how hard it is. He knows you're waiting. He knows what you're suffering, what you are going through. But that's why He has reminded us with these words, with these truths. So until that day, drink deep from the wells of salvation and remember our joys in Him. Let's pray. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, help us to rejoice in You. For those of us who are in a difficult place, cause them to look upon the author and perfecter of our faith. Be their strength, be their song. For those of us who come to draw water from the well of Garden Church this morning, cause them to drink deep these joys and proclaim faithfully Your gospel out of the abundant outflow of their hearts. We pray for anyone who do not know you. Let today be the day of their repentance and salvation. For your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.